Welcome to our Rattlebag public interview. Tonight, we are going to hear about someone who retired at the height of their fame, a move much regretted by a host of avid fans, and then thought better of that decision and made a tremendous comeback to further rapturous acclaim and glory. But enough about DJ Carey. We've got a full house this evening in the National Concert Hall for a very special guest. She won't mind, I think, being called a household name, but would probably quibble at being described as a national treasure for fear that the National Museum would insist on housing her in Collins Barracks for the rest of her life. Her name is associated with generosity of spirit, great good humour and warm-hearted insight, and her novels aren't bad either. Two years ago, like that famous Kilkenny hurler, she announced that she'd had enough. And the people of Clare are today mourning DJ's change of heart. Nobody regrets, though, that our guest tonight uh, did change her mind, and nobody regrets the publication of her new novel, Quentin's. Would you please welcome Maeve Binchy? Um, okay, let's, let's start off with what you raised yourself. Did you retire? And if you did retire, why have you come out of retirement? I have written all those short stories anyway, and uh, it seemed like a good idea if people didn't mind my not doing big punishing book tours. I'm getting older and frailer and tireder, and I do find it an exhausting thing. Which is a, and so I, I just didn't know that you're actually allowed to bring out a book of short stories connected by a big one, which makes it into a story. I didn't know I was allowed to do that, and I'm delighted now. Shall we be doing that forever? Because that's not very hard. <laughs> and, you see, but the funny thing, it's not that I don't like meeting people. I've, I've often interviewed authors authors who actually hate meeting people and I've seen I've met fellow authors who, who don't like book signings I love it I'd be there forever people would be asking me questions about uh, uh, you know saying could you sign this uh, for Marcella and I'd be saying who's Marcella because I'd be so <laughs> interested to know and you know the line would be getting longer and I'd be so interested and really and what happened when Marcella was 25 because I was to be so interested in the story and I did love it but it was so exhausting that you never got time to do anything else so that's what the whole retirement and you see what happened was I was 60 uh, two years ago and therefore I, was, I had to leave the Irish Times or in my own mind I had to leave the Irish Times. So therefore to, to give up my column there. And once I gave up that, I thought I'd have a bit of a rest. So that's, that's the retirement bit over. Now, now, that, now that I know I can write short stories and link them all together, so I'll be there until, <laughs> until I drop. <laughs> now, um, we're in this elegant hall, and this, I think, probably has other associations for you as it does for me before it became the elegant, well, it was always an elegant hall, but before it became the hall, the national concert hall that it is. Uh, this is where you did your university exams. Does it, does it bring memories of UCD flooding back? Happy memories. Indeed. But then all my memories, I'm afraid that I'm a little bit over rose tinted in my memories because I had that thing that nobody really writes about much. I had a hugely happy Irish childhood. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't miserable and I wasn't poor and nobody abused me or ran after me or beat the legs off me. But, but that puts you... Uh... That puts you at an enormous literary disadvantage. <laughs> I mean, well, how can you possibly have a writing career if you did not have a miserable Irish childhood? Well, it, it, it was an odd thing, but I suppose in a way I came into it by accident. I never intended to be a writer. I was going to be a judge, not, not just a barrister, but a judge. 
Uh, my father was a barrister, and in the years uh, when I grew up, in the 40s and 50s, uh, if you were middle class enough to be a barrister, your wife did not go out to work because it looked dreadful. It looked as if the man wasn't able to support her. That's what it was in those days. And it would look terrible. My mother only had one friend who went out to work. Now I have well, uh, hardly any friends who didn't go out to work, any married friends. Everything changed very much in all those 40 years. And um, so uh, I, I knew that judges were terribly important people because my father used to speak of them as a barrister with awe and hoping that you know, there'd be a right decision and a wrong decision, he'd win a case. So I thought maybe I could be a judge and <laughs> decide. I had no doubts about my own wisdom and all these things. I think he'd been a great judge. Because to be a judge, first of all, you had to be a barrister or, or a solicitor. And so I, when I, start, I started doing law, and I was really only about five minutes into law when I realised I was a, the most unsuitable person in the world for it. So you never would have made it to the Supreme Court? No, I wouldn't have made it to the Supreme Court. I wouldn't have made it to getting, being called to the bar or anything. There was so much meticulousness in learning things and taking things seriously and, and reading things thoroughly, things that wasn't at all my, my long suit. So uh, I, I did a degree in UCD, and as you say, this was UCD, and it was very grubby and smelt of dirty raincoats and chips, chips and feet. Do you remember feet? feet smell yeah. feet. That's because in here particularly, because this was I used to play badminton in here, so that was the smell of the feet. That would be my feet. feet. Yes, great feet smell here. And uh, then we used to uh, come in. I went came to UCD in 1956 um, on a wet October day, and I was just so excited to buy it because we'd been to a convent school and at I had no elder brothers who might have introduced me to the glorious world of men about which we talked non-stop at school from the age of 13 until 17 we talked about men non-stop and we were so excited about them and what we would do when we met them and mainly I think I talked for two years about the wedding night and what you <laughs> what you do on the wedding night and would you go to the bathroom first or would he go to the bathroom because the bathroom would always be down a corridor because we never understood en suite hadn't come to Ireland at that stage and would you go to the bathroom first and would you be lying on the bed waiting for him when he came back or would, would that be too eager or or forward. You, or forward, or would you pretend to be asleep, or would that be too backwards? So, I mean, I promise you, this is what we talked about non-stop. And then we suddenly got out into the world where men were, which was 1956 UCD. And they were very different than what we thought, because they weren't as full of this wonderful lust that the, the nuns had taught us. I was taught by a wonderful group of nuns who were the Holy Child Convent nuns in Kalini. They were a bit posher than, uh, than us, for a starter, and they were, a lot of them were English, and they had come over to Ireland. I think they regarded it in those days as part of their missionary duty, you know, to come to, <laughs> but, but they were marvellous women, and they, not one of them ever said a word to me as I wrote dreadful, cliché, caricature nuns into my books and stories. I never had a word of attack from any of them. They were very, very nice, but they did fire us with the notion that it was lust. And one of them must have told me, because I couldn't have made it up myself, that the way God had arranged things was for the propagation of the species. That the propagation of the species wouldn't happen, because we were all dead lazy, we wouldn't bother propagating ourselves, <laughs> unless there was some mild pleasure attached to it. So some mild pleasure was attached to propagating ourselves. 
and he put into men an insatiable lust. And he put into women something called holy purity, which was to <laughs> beat them back. So I came into these halls in UCD prepared, because I was very, very religious. I was prepared to beat back all this lust. And I was a bit disappointed there wasn't more of it, you know, getting ready to, to, to beat it back. But I had a wonderful time. I was nervous that day. I can remember, I think every time I come up for Terrace, I think of that day of getting out. It's so strange, getting out at the station that we then called Westland Row, which is now Pierce Station, and coming into what we then called UCD, which is now the National Concert Hall. And everything has changed so much. But I can, that feeling of that day is still the same. Will I be all right? Will it be like, will going to university be like going to a, a dance? Or, or is it like a beauty competition where the race is going to be to the petite and the pretty? And I'm, I'm going to have an awful time. And you know, about two days, I discovered the blinding truth that fellas were like the rest of us. I mean, they were kind of normal. And they just, you could have chats with them. And you'd have beans and toast with them and chips in the cafe. And you'd talk about the subjects you were doing and the match you'd be going to. And I had glorious four years here. I did a, a H-dip as well uh, to be a teacher. I was very happy. And what happened then? What did you communicate about lust to the pupils that you then subsequently taught when you, uh, when you became a teacher? Well, I didn't feel, since I wasn't in religious life myself, and I wasn't necessarily trying to safeguard the morals of the whole country, I didn't, I didn't feel it necessary to tell them that business about the insatiable lust in men and holy purity in women. Actually, I think the world had moved on in those four years. I don't think they'd have believed me, really, for a start. And I taught in several schools. I taught for a year in Cork, first of all, when I uh, got my, my diploma, I taught in Cork for a year. And I taught in uh, Dublin in, in a girls' school called Pembroke School, Miss Meredith School. I taught in a Jewish school, a Jewish primary school up on South Circular Road. And I was very, very happy. And I left Lust out of it, really, because we didn't... It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a good... I, I, I taught a lot about history. I told them lots about all the marvellous things in the Roman Empire. And I don't know whether they ever learned any verbs in Latin. I taught Latin as well. There were any verbs or nouns, but they knew all about the goings-on in the Roman <laughs> <laughs> they still tell me about it sometimes. Um, were you the kind of teacher who, for whom the, the best things about your profession were June, July and August? No, I did like the kids very much and I always wanted them, I wanted them to remember me well, whether they, they I suppose I was so large and, and kind of overpowering and I took no, uh, no, no prisoners in the school. I was very loud and frightened them at the beginning on the grounds that somebody told me once that you've got to be very tough on day one and you can always soften up after that. And we used to wear a gown, a dreadful gown covered in chalk and uh, I, I had to sail up and down the room t and terrify them. And, uh, and they were very, very nice the girls and in fact a very funny thing happened, a really funny thing happened. Lots of my pupils outstripped me and became eventually, in the end, my bosses. I mean, there was a time in the Irish Times when Caroline Walsh, whom I taught, it was the features editor of the Irish Times, and Rena Hollihan, whom I taught, was on the news desk. And these people were sending me to do jobs anymore. <laughs> and I had once been terrorising them and giving them, you know, things to stay in after school. So the great world of education means that people move on and on and on, and that nothing stays the same. I loved it. I loved it. I was very happy as a teacher. And there's, a, there's a, a pretty well-known story about how you got into journalism, but like a lot of well-known stories, I'm not sure if it's absolutely true. Is it true? 
that you're, it wasn't really you directly who did it. No, and I'd love to, because I'm always advising people in my uh, role as agony aunt, saying you are entirely in control of your own life, you must make all your own decisions. And that really is one of the things I believe in very strongly. But in my own case, it was not so. I was in the Jewish school and I taught there. The parents who very kindly uh, gave me a ticket to Israel to go for the summer of 1950. It was a t return ticket, was it? It was a return ticket. <laughs> it was a return <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but it was a return ticket. And I went to Israel, and my mother and father were nervous. I was the eldest of their brood, and to go away. And to go in 1963 to, um, uh, to, to, to a, a, the Middle East, which was a fairly turbulent place even then, and nobody that we knew had ever gone there. And to work in a kibbutz, which they'd never heard of before, that I was going to do, seemed kind of a nervous thing. So I promised them that I'd keep in touch. I'd write to them every day or every two days. And I wrote these long letters to tell them all the, that I was doing. And I was, one day I'd be plucking chickens, other days I'd be injecting day-old chicks, other days I'd be cooking chickens. And I had a long, long relationship with the lifestyle of a chicken, I can tell you that. <laughs> and then, then I would be doing oranges and all the rest of it. It was a lovely, lovely time. And I told them how the, the whole idea of the sort of socialist theory of a kibbutz worked and that everybody looked after the children together. I thought it was grand that I was telling them, informing them like this. And when they saw it, because they were very, very um, enthusiastic people to whom all their geese were swans, they thought this was brilliant. They thought Maeve is brilliant out there. First of all, she's alive because she's writing every two days. <laughs> That's good news. And my mother was desperately worried about me. Uh, one of the worries that she need not have ever had. I remember her saying to one of her friends, I'm very worried about Maeve going on to that place, you know. Will she get enough to eat? <laughs> there would be no place in the world that I wouldn't have found enough to eat. And I found plenty to eat out there. But I kept them totally happy by sending them all these um, lovely letters. And my father said, I think this is brilliant. We'll get it typed. And by, it was typed and it was sent to uh, a newspaper. When I came home, I couldn't believe it. There I was. I had three quarters of a page of a newspaper. An Irish girl describes communal farm and kibbutz in Israel. And I said, isn't that extraordinary? And I was never greedy. I was never greedy ever about money. But I couldn't get over the money because I got £17 for it and we only got £14 a week for teaching. I got £17 for one article. Imagine, should no wonder people be writers. And then I wrote for four years and never got anything published again. <laughs> <laughs> and so in those four years, the reason I got nothing published, <clears throat> I know now, but I didn't know then, because I was writing in a desperately show-off way. And I thought, well, if this is what I wrote without trying, goodness knows what I could write if I tried. <laughs> but of course, uh, that was not the way I was to have any success. I, my only success has been writing as I talk. And I talk without, as you can see, without much pause for, for breath. And I write very speedily without much pause for, per, for punctuation or anything. And that's, I think, the way an awful lot of Irish people uh, have found a voice for themselves by writing in that way. And I didn't know that but until three or four years later. And I met Michael Viney from the Irish Times. And I asked him, I said, what do you have to do to get an article published? And he said, what do you care about most today, just today? And I said, well, today, I think, I understand most of those 15-year-old girls much better than their mothers do. And he said, write that. And I wrote a marvellous piece about how I loved 15-year-old girls. Their mothers hated them because they were all filthy and they stole their mother's makeup and they were sulky. And I loved them because I saw the poetic side of them and the decent side of them at school. 
And I, I think that teachers knew far more, teachers would be having much more control over them. And it was wonderful, because a big controversy started. And then I was more or less there, because yeah. I realised that that's what you did, you read to write about what you cared about and what you knew. You became, amongst other things, woman's editor of the Irish Times. Were you ideally suited for that situation, clued into fashion, uh, well up in cookery, all that kind of stuff? I'll tell you, I was the most unsuitable person in the world that the Irish Times could have found to be woman's editor. I knew nothing about fashion, and the, my theory about fashion was if all those little skinny things could get, buy clothes, let them go out and buy their own bloody clothes. <laughs> I wasn't going to be writing about clothes to fit them. And I didn't have any knowledge of cooking because I had never cooked. We lived at home and meals were put on the table for us. I had never cooked. But I thought, well, I'd better get somebody who knows how to cook. So I got Theodora Fitzgibbon, asked her if she would write regularly for our pages. And, uh, and if I could just tell my... Can I tell you my story about Theodora? Uh, the, the, this is the, 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 the deathless instruction, hold the cookery page. <laughs> yes. Uh, Theodora used to, pe- to write her articles immaculately typed. I cannot tell you. Theodora had a terribly posh voice that would cut through steel. And Theodora thought that I knew all about cookery because I was the boss of the woman's page. And I used to say, that's very good, very nice, that piece about marmalade oranges. Pretty good, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> I was just so glad to have the thing in, the right length, tidy. And sometimes Theodora's uh, husband, George Morrison, who was a filmmaker and took lovely pictures, would take a picture. Now, I can't remember in the Irish Times if we ever paid him for any of these pictures, but it was always lovely when he did give, take a picture. So anyway, one day I was dying to get home. Uh, was, uh, my father was at home alone. I wanted to go home and to be with him, and I was, it was taking forever the day. And I thought, well, I know now. Maybe uh, it was a cookie page. It won't be too long because Theodora's done all this. I hope George had sent a picture. George had not sent a picture. So I was unreasonably annoyed with George. And it was, it was veal recipes, and there was all these things... Um, uh, to veal marsala and veal holstein and the veal casserole and all these things. So I looked at them. There was never a mistake. What was I looking at? There was never a mistake in Theodora's writing. It was perfect. And I thought, I've got to find a picture to go with it. But I didn't have any picture because I hadn't sent one out in time. It was my fault. So I had to find something that was about that shape. I found something that was that shape in my, in my file of emergency pictures, which I always kept. And what I found in there was a casserole with lots of knives and forks sticking out of it. So I took this dirt and I said, underneath it I typed, tasty veal casserole, excellent for a winter evening. And I went home uh, on the train to Dorky and I went home and my father and myself were sitting down and we were having had our tea and then we were looking at the nine o'clock news and the second item on the nine o'clock news froze my blood to terror. The second item on the news was uh, Dr Christian Barnard was coming out of the... Uh, Grootshore Hospital in, in South Africa, and it said, Dr. Bernard, after his second heart transplant operation, and I said, that's where I saw that picture before. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I thought, what I thought was where knives and forks were clamps and forcing, and they holding the heart open. an unfortunate happening and I kept saying oh my god oh my god and I said to my father what had happened and because he was a lawyer he said admit nothing (laughs) (laughs) admit nothing I said yes I know I have to admit something daddy and we had no car we had no car so I started to run from Dorky into Delirious (laughs) Street 
Now, before I, uh, before I, I started, I said I rang Mr. Gageby, who was the editor. I said, Mr. Gageby, and to ring Mr. Gageby at ten past nine at night, you know, you really, the world, would, third world war should be starting before you do that. And I said, Mr. Gageby, it's me. For, yes, yes, what is it? And I said, Mr. Gageby, I'm afraid we're going to have to hold the cookery page. I beg your pardon, he said, I said, it's not a veal casserole, it's, it's a heart operation. It's open, <laughs> it's, it's open heart surgery. And I could hear him ask for the page to be brought to him. And he said, this is bad, he said. This is very bad. The only newspaper in the world to be prosecuted for cannibalism. <laughs> so, so I said, this is, this is the end, my career is over, run, run, run. I ran down the hill of Knocknacree Road where we lived. I ran and ran and ran, hoping there was going to be a train. The trains were few and far between those. Maybe I should run to the bus. And there was a man passing and I stopped the car and I told him what had happened. And I said, are you going anywhere near Dallier Street? He said, I am now. <laughs> <laughs> he came up in the lift with me and everybody on the whole floor, it was now 10 o'clock, and everybody was there, and I could probably, the bloody woman was all I could hear, that bloody woman was here. And I said, I'm here, I'm here, Mr. Gage, I'm here. I said, what, what am I going to do? So anyway, uh, the awful thing that you, the thing you dread most, and the lawyers were around the page, and people in suits, and they're all standing around my desk, and they're opening drawers and things, private drawers of mine, and finding little miniatures of gin, and you know, uh, all kinds of things that they shouldn't have been finding at all. Terrible things. And they were in there, and I was... Uh, and, and Mr. Gageby now, there was a terrible tick in his forehead, and he said, um, you have five minutes, you have five minutes to find a picture. There's no time to make it bigger or smaller than the rest of it. Get into what you laughingly call your files and find something better than that. And there seemed to be a semicircle, there seemed to be as many people as there are in this room around me. And I finally found the only picture that was the same size, which was uh, an advertisement, I think, uh, for Wedgwood. You know, Wedgwood would send you the odd free picture for an advertisement. It was a, it was a Wedgwood egg cup, anyway, with an egg in it. And... Um, <laughs> I wrote, I typed underneath it, why be content with a boiled egg? <laughs> um, you, also, you also worked as travel and tourism correspondent for the Irish Times. Now, every journalist alive at some point wants to be a travel correspondent, even if it's only for two weeks or something like that. Was it all it was cracked up to be? It was lonely sometimes, you know, if you went off to places by yourself to, to look at things. It was lonely. But I was a very bossy journalist, as I had been a school teacher, And so I was constantly telling people, for example, in my column, why go on holidays with somebody who just happens to have the first two weeks off in June as well? Because very often you want different things. Why don't you go on your own and be brave enough to go on your holidays on your own? Nowadays, young people obviously do that, but in those days it was considered a sort of sad and friendless thing to do, to go on a holiday, as if you were so awful that nobody else would go with you. So I was busy saying that you could have a great time on your own, you get to talk to people, and indeed you could, and I met lots of great people and had great adventures. But one of the worst things that happened to me on my own on a holiday was the time there was a free trip came in uh, we weren't allowed to accept free trips except if they were called inaugurals in other words if it was the first trip of a 
of a line, of an airline. So I suddenly, about two minutes notice, I was told that I could go to Taiwan. Uh, and I knew nothing about Taiwan. I read a great book about, about it all on the, on the way. And you had to stay three or four days in Taiwan. And then you could come home slowly, stopping off at places. This was a fantastic trip. And all I had to do was try and find something interesting to write about each place, and I could do it. And I went to Taiwan, and it was, this is a long time ago, this is nearly 30 years ago now. And um, I went to Taiwan, and in those days, it was a very different place than I believe it is now. In those days, it was a tiny little island where all the American troops, which was Formosa, where all the American troops were uh, having bad relationships with the local Chinese, and therefore never went out. So there was just local Chinese people there, and there were no tourists. And there was martial music being played on the television the whole time, telling them they were going to invade uh, mainland China tomorrow. Now, this is, was very unnerving, and I went to a hotel, a very small hotel, which served very bad and undigestible hangovers. I, uh, uh, hangovers, there's a Freudian slip, hamburgers is what I meant to say. <laughs> I, had, I had also very bad and indigestible hangovers from drinking very, very, very strange kind of Thai whiskey, which they had there. It was all the whole thing was very unsatisfactory. And I thought, I'm really not doing my job. I must go out there and see what there is to see. I kept, kept trying to get a taxi to Chiang Kai-shek's museum. And every time I got one, I, I seemed to go to another motorcycle repair shop. Or, I, and it was, I was just not doing my job. And I kept thinking, now, you've always bossed other people. So get out there, mate. Walk. Go out and see it. So I walked along a long place, like maybe from here down to the bottom of Grafton Street. And because there were no signs on the road that I could read, because it was all in Chinese, I had to, I was like the babes in the woods saying, well, I've passed a, a motorcycle repair shop here and a, a, a record shop there, another motorcycle repair shop there. And I was kind of doing it, and I went into a place that was a restaurant. I knew it was a restaurant because it had a menu in the window. And when I went in the door, there was all these people sitting down at tables eating. So I don't have a meal there now, be authentic. Don't be such a fool sitting eating these dreadful, dreadful hamburgers in the hotel. So I went in and I got this feeling as I went in the door, like in a John Wayne movie, that my shadow sort of fell over all the people. <laughs> my shadow fell over them and the, the restaurant darkened. There was some light in it before. So I got away from the door sharpish and I sat myself down, I smiled. They were all men. And being Chinese, they were petite-sized men, and I, being me, was a very big-sized person sitting at a table over there, and they handed me a menu entirely in Chinese. So um, this was a puzzler, because you couldn't say, I'll have menu A, you know, <laughs> like that, because it, it didn't seem to be there. And I couldn't point to some things in case I might get something that I couldn't eat, like a slug or something. So therefore, uh, I just thought I'd look around what people were having. And at one table there, I saw a man having what looked like sweet and sour prawns, so I thought fine. And I saw a man there having what looked like beer. And I thought, that would be grand. So I pointed at that, and I pointed at that. They took his prawns away. <laughs> and they gave them to me. And then they took the man's beer, and they gave them to me. And I had the sense, I may have been imagining it, that everybody was eating quite quickly with their jobs. <laughs> I felt that everybody was eating very, very, very quickly. That they were all, uh, you know, doing um, a pretty good job on getting it finished before I suddenly spied what they were having. <laughs> and I might ask for it. So um, I had worked out, like, what would it cost? Taiwanese dollars was the currency. And I was working out, I wonder how much that would cost now. Let me see, at home it would have been, this is before uh, even the metric money had come in. I said, wait, at home it would be um, 
uh, to be about 11 shillings. I think 11 shillings would be fair to leave that. That would be generous. So I just worked all that out in Taiwanese dollar, and I left it, and the waiter shook his head fearfully. So I put it back into money and I said goodbye. I tried to shake hands with him, he wouldn't shake hands. I backed to the door, I smiled at them, and I got out and I found my way home back to the indigestible hangovers where I stayed. It never left the hotel again until it was time to go. But I thought about it for a long time afterwards. I don't know what it was. Maybe it wasn't a restaurant, maybe it was a private house, maybe it was a wedding. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was a funeral, I don't know, but why did they give me a menu? But what did they say when they went home to their families? <laughs> description did they give of what came in the door <laughs> and how it had eaten Yang Ho's food and drank somebody else's beer and did they live in terror that I might come back again <laughs> so, so I, it was, it, I remember thinking to myself on the bench it's a pretty poor, I've got the courage now because I'm retired and everything to tell those kind of stories, but I don't think I wrote that story in the paper because I didn't think it showed me in the good light of <laughs> the cutting edge of tourism or anything like that. Now, a lot of your journalism was straight out of the school of eavesdropping. Um, so not getting out and about as much as a full-time writer, did you have to imagine conversations that you might previously have overheard, or did you just make up those conversations anyway? Why, for books now? You know, well, no, I mean, did you have to imagine the conversation for the books, or did you make up the conversations for the journalism? No, I could hear them for the journalism, and not only did I, uh, could I hear them, but I did another great thing which I would advise anybody uh, to do, not whether, whether you wanted to write or not. I learned lip reading. <laughs> And lip reading, <laughs> lip reading is the most marvellously satisfying thing. I got a bad, very bad cold once. There was a terrible old flu in London. And everybody got these colds and we all went deaf and we, everything was ridiculous. And there was a lip reading um, course on television. And it was great that I did it. And I went to some lip reading classes in Kensington. And it was, it was fine and I, could, I can lip read pretty well now. And the way you do it is you, turn, you, you record the news on a video and then you turn the news right down and uh, then you watch the newscaster's face over and over again until you... <laughs> what am I saying now? You're saying, you said, what am I saying God. now? Very good. That's exactly what I was saying. So, so anyway, uh, it, 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 it's fine, it's good. It's all, I can see it. And once I was giving a talk to, I, I, well, to a group, she said vaguely, a group, and there was, just in case the people might be here, and they were all lining up after this lunch to have their uh, books signed. I was terribly nervous. I am actually very nervous. I don't, I don't sound as if I'd be talking here forever. I'm very, very nervous of speaking and making a public speech. And I was so afraid I was going to be sick that I didn't eat anything. And I said to the waitress, whom I knew, and she said, you'll have to eat something, mate. Because it's all free, she said. And I said, I know, I know, I know. But I, I wait till afterwards. Wait till I've made my speech. And then you could bring me a plate of, of cheese and biscuits. And she said, that'll be fine. So anyway, I was fine. There was a big queue coming up, line coming up to meet me. And about halfway down the line, I saw two very elegant women. And one of them was saying, would you look at her eating the cheese and biscuits? <laughs> a plate of cheese and biscuits after that meal. Is it any wonder she's the size? <laughs> <laughs> but she was like way across the room. And I had seen it as clearly as if she had said it into my ear. So I fumed a bit about that. I fumed only, I mean, because you, know, you, know, you like to hear good of yourself. This was not good. So I said, I'm fumed. And so when she came up, and these two women, and they were saying, they were full of plumos, you see, and said, aren't you lovely? Aren't you lovely? 
it's lovely to see you. You look so well. And I said, and you mustn't worry a bit about the cheese. <laughs> you mustn't worry. But I had it instead of the dinner as well as... Uh, I had not, not as well as it. And their faces were scarred. And I loved it. I was delighted. <laughs> I was delighted. I was so childish, really, when you think of it. Because all I suppose they were doing was, you know, after my health and my cholesterol. But I, I've always been listening to people, and I, you're constantly overhearing things. I mean, if you listen to things and you take them out of context, most of my books I've got the idea from by listening to people. I was on a bus in London once, and I got the idea for writing Silver Wedding, where I heard two girls talk to another, one another, and one said, I've got to go and get a, a silver wedding card for my parents. And the other one said, that's nice. And the other one said, first one said, oh, no, it's not. The worse the marriage, the bigger the card. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, I wonder is that true? Is that how Hallmark cards made all their money? That all these people <laughs> just get, give cards out of guilt. And so you get an idea over and over again from listening. But nowadays, um, I still listen. I mean, when I'm, I, I don't walk so well, and, but, but very often, I, if I go to um, a, an art gallery or um, uh, an airport or a restaurant, I'm quite happy sitting by myself. You can, you can actually hear the most amazing things at tables. And once we were, we were in a restaurant in Cornwall, and I said to Gordon, I'm very sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to stop talking entirely, just read the menu at me. And he said, why? And I said, because the couple of the next table are splitting up. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hear it. <laughs> and they were talking about custody of the dog, I swear it. <laughs> they'd been there for the whole week. And I actually nearly fell off my chair trying to get into their table to hear them. <laughs> you can hear so much. And you don't ever hear anything really very, very new or exciting. What you do hear, which is very interesting, you hear the cadences that people talk to each other. And when I was writing Tower Road, I wanted to have a mother and a 16-year-old daughter going shopping. And a mother and a 16-year-old daughter should never shop together. I mean, these are species that should not be brought together for a shopping outing. And so what I went to do is I sat in various clothes shops uh, and I listened. I just sat there. And you see, you can sit there and listen. If you put a sort of a look on your face as if you're not the full shilling, you see. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of nodding around the place like that. And sort of nodding, and people are so happy that you're not saying anything or shouting or anything. They'll leave you there, and you nod and nod and nod, right, and all that. And uh, I, I, it was wonderful, because when, um, when I wrote that book, lots of people said to me, I was very glad, don't do an awful lot of research. And I was very pleased I did that bit, because lots of people said, that's exactly what it's like to see. What would happen would be that the girl would go to pretend, I thought this might be nice, and the mother would faint, because she mother would say, but that's not a dress, that's a bondage garment. <laughs> and then the, the daughter would say, you don't want me to wear that, that's nice, and my grandmother would wear. And I just realised that, that if you just listen to them, it's great. So I think anybody from eavesdropping, conversation of judicious eavesdropping, and lip reading. Oh, and the other thing is never to hang up on a crossed line. That's another good thing. <laughs> never to hang up on a crossed line. You have grand things there. That's always very useful. That's very, very useful, the cross line. Pearl, pearls of wisdom for anybody who wants to write a bestseller. <laughs> never hang up on a cross line. Uh, do you think that the literary establishment takes a, a snobbish approach to your work? Well, I don't think about it much whether they do or not, because I'm not the kind of person who would win prizes. But I don't mind that, you know, I mean, I don't mind that. I'm, I'm an airport author, in a sense. I'm a, 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 
a person people would want to be going on their holidays, they want to take a book. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to tell a story. I never wanted to win the Whitbread Prize or the Booker Prize or anything like that. I never set out to be that. I love and adore some of the people who, who are the contenders for it. I don't mind. I never hurt anybody, not to my face. They don't say, um, uh, you know, out of here, Maeve, you know, this is for the big boys and girls who write seriously. They don't, nobody's ever done that. And uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't I'm, not, I'm not aware of it. But on the other hand, there is a difference between popular fiction and literary fiction. And if there is, well, you know, so I, I, I don't uh, get frightened by it, so let it be. Let people, if it's a definition that will help people identify what they want to read, let them have it. Mind you, Circle of Friends is on the optional leaving certificate list for 2004. So uh, if you ever went back to teaching, for example, you could be teaching, <laughs> teaching your own novel. And how, right. how does it feel to be up there with the likes of Emily Bronte, Jane Austen and John McGahan? Well, uh, there was a marvellous uh, letter in the BBC when George Bernard Shaw was asked for permission to let his, one of his works be used as an educational thing in the BBC Schools programme. And he wrote back this wonderful diatribe from saying, I have no intention of letting my wonderful stories be made instruments of torture for children. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I, don't, I don't feel as strongly as that. I think it might be kind of light, easy reading, and if they can stay with it. See, I often have people saying to me, and they say it as a compliment, and I take it as a compliment. People said to me, over and over. Do you know, Maeve, my daughter is illiterate. She reads absolutely nothing and she loves your book. So <laughs> who said that? You were asked on French television, no doubt in a much more sonorous and profound way than I'd be able to ask it, what is your philosophy of life, madame? And you had to come up with a very quick answer in French. Have you thought about it in the meantime? I've had a very, very good deal. Uh, we've started about saying about the happy childhood, which was, would, for, for literary standards, would seem to be a disadvantage. It is a lovely thing to look back on my great, um, uh, with great pleasure and on, my, on my life and how kind my parents were and how, what good friends I am with my sisters and brother. And, you know, I, I, couldn't, bear, I couldn't bear a lifestyle where you, there was constant um, uh, coldness or anything like that. And, you know, when I, I often think, too, of my sister, um, who's uh, both my sisters, my dear friends, but when I was uh, three and a half, she was born. And, you know, there was a lot of praying, please God, send me a little brother, a little sister, please God, send me a little brother. I didn't know exactly how imminent it was. And then when it arrived, I apparently, my mother always told me, looked at her for quite a while, six weeks, thoughtfully. And then I said, I think we'll send her back and get a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for various reasons, I didn't do that. And I'm very glad. I've had, had a great life. I, have, I, I had enough brains just to scrape past exams. I was never an intellectual. We had enough money uh, to, because in those days, it was money that bought you an education to, to, to get me into this amazing UCD, and all you need to do in 1956 is have enough money and a kind of an, an average brain. It's so much harder in young people nowadays. I was very, very lucky. So if you found me whinging and whining and saying that people were, uh, were bad to me, you know, I'd be a very ungrateful person altogether. I've had a fantastic time. I won't keep you any longer. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Maeve Vinci, thank you very much indeed. Public interview with Maeve Binchy at the National Concert Hall. On sound were Alex O'Gorman and Kevin Fowdy. The programme is produced by the series producer Kevin Reynolds. From Rattlebag, goodbye.